Today's episode is with David Horgan, who serves as the Discovery Council and Legal Education Director at Relativity. David has a really interesting career. Believe it or not, he actually makes learning about e-discovery somewhat fun, which is good. So he, he, he's got a lot of knowledge about the, the industry and the background. And so he offers some of that and talks about relativity and, and how they've grown into this giant in the e-discovery space. And that's really helpful. He talks about his, his background growing up, that he was interested, believe it or not, in genealogy when he was a kid. And he would go into courtrooms. He said he would even bring a briefcase and come into courtrooms. And so I think he got some funny looks when he was a little kid walking into the courtrooms early in his in his life. And, and that led to an interest in law. When he started practicing, he did not practice at a law firm. He went right into journalism. And he was a reporter at the National Law Journal, which is really interesting, and his interest in e-discovery really sort of blossomed during the 9-11 attacks. When that happened, it created this problem for e-discovery, and 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 he was reporting on how that was all coming together and working, and, and then that one thing led into another, and he ultimately ended up with relativity during their early days, and, and today he he kind of combines that, that love of law and journalism into the career that he has today, where he's educating people on e-discovery and it's it's really interesting he's a great guy a really good guest i think you're really going to enjoy getting to know him in this episode and so now without further ado this is david horgan all right thanks everybody for joining us again here at the attorney lounge today we've got david horgan he is discovery council and legal education director at relativity thank you david for joining us Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been doing this a couple times lately where I hit people with a curveball question. And so this is not really a curveball question. This is, an, I think, more an opportunity for you to educate the audience on something. When I was doing my research on you, you brought something up that I thought was interesting, and I thought maybe you could share it. Why are the Patriots not called the Bay State Patriots? <laughs> That's a good one. By the way, I noticed that our producers are from the Boston Podcast Network. Yes, I hail from Nahant, Massachusetts, which is just outside Boston, right on the water on the luxurious North Shore of Boston. But think about it, because if you abbreviate Bay State, the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you would have the BS Patriots. Now, I'm <laughs> sure a lot of fans from New York would have liked that, but they just decided to decline. Well, I thought that I was inter- that came up on a not- another podcast that you were on. I thought that was interesting and considering it's football season. I think by the time this episode comes out, we may actually be the Super Bowl may have occurred because it's probably going to be a couple of weeks later. But as we sit here today, Kansas City Chiefs, my team just won last night. So I am still excited. But when this podcast comes out, I may be miserable. We'll see. Well, the Buffalo Bills, the Susan Lucci of professional sports. And if anyone has ever watched a soap opera, you will get that reference. Yes. Yeah. God, you got to feel for the people of Buffalo. But hey, great game. It was it was a good game. A lot of fun. And I wanted to get that in there because producer Dave is from Boston. And so I thought he might appreciate that yeah. as well. So, okay. Well, to the regularly scheduled program. Oh, Dave, did you want to say something? I don't, I don't normally jump in, but yeah. I actually years ago had a gentleman named Upton Bell on my podcast. He was, the, I think, the original GM of the 
the Patriots. Wow. And he he claims to have coined the phrase any given Sunday, but he was at the wheel when the decision was made because the B, BS Base State Patriots was a legit consideration. I don't know yeah. what the context was, and he told me that someone figured out every headline in the Boston Herald would say BS Patriots. Right, right, right. You know it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll see myself out now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you for jumping in. I knew you'd appreciate that, and I thought it was—I thought it was really good. So there were. Hey, I, uh, unfortunately, I—I I would like to credit the host of that podcast. He asked you a lot of really interesting questions, and maybe we'll get a chance to get to it. At one point, you talked about that you were actually mugged. Ah, uh, that was a scary, <laughs> scary incident, and it was on Christmas Eve. It made it all the less entertaining. Yeah. Well, you survived it and uh, credit to him for asking some of those interesting questions, but that's typically not what we cover in this program. So, <laughs> If anybody wants to see it, I would just say, look up David Horgan uh, mugged, uh, mugged, I don't know, on YouTube, maybe you'll find it. Okay. So to the regularly scheduled program that you're here for, a lot of what we talk about, attorneys with interesting careers and in particular attorneys that don't have traditional legal careers, which right. which you fit the bill with that. And so- I want to talk a little bit about you and your career and kind of how you got into law, but start with growing up before you were interested in law, where did you grow up? What did you want to do? You know, I was kind of a geeky kid, so I had an interest in law from an early age. I moved around a lot as a kid because my dad was, uh, I guess you never cease being a naval officer. He still is a naval officer, but he's been retired for some years. And so moved around when I was a kid, a little Navy brat. But then he went to NASA, to mission control at NASA, and I was fairly young. So pretty much grew up in Houston and then went to undergrad in New Orleans, hmm. was working as a reporter for a while, undergrad, University of Florida, then went overseas for a while, was at the National Law Journal in New York, went overseas, was in-house in Washington, D.C. for a while, then went to 451 Research as analyst and counsel, and I was covering um, e-discovery in the legal technology industry. And uh, one of my clients was this little startup called Kekura. Mm -hmm. And uh, those of you who have been around e-discovery for a while will know that Kekura uh, became Relativity. Relativity was always the name of the software, but the company was uh, Kekura up until about 2016, I think it was. 2016 to 2017, name was changed to the name of the product, Relativity. Wow. So I want to get into that a little bit deeper because, and I don't want to leave your personal story for, to get there yet, but as someone that's new to eDiscovery, I've been just working in this this area now for about six months. I, I think what I'm hopeful you can kind of walk us through some of the history of e-discovery and kind of the background of relativity. It's a giant in the space and sort of how it came to be before I get there. So what you were, that's interesting that you were interested in law from a young age. Cause typically I ask people like, when did you become interested in law? What did you like? What, what made you want to go to law school? Do you even recall what that was? I, mean, I spent a lot of time in courthouses as a kid. Not that I was out committing crimes, but I was a little amateur junior genealogist. And this was hmm. before Ancestry.com made it the cool thing to do. Well, I don't know that it's reached cool status, but it has reached ubiquitous status. For sure. Uh, no, but we had a class project when I was in sixth grade of doing genealogy. And Houston has an excellent genealogical library, the Clayton Library. If you find yourself in Houston, I, I urge you to check it out because the resources there are just great. 
And so I'm a little sixth grade kid. I go there. And unlike the other kids, they did their project and quit. I thought, wow, this is fascinating because I was sort of a history buff. And, and when it's your own history, it's even kind of cooler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because usually you go to any genealogy library and the only people there are either Mormons or geriatrics. <laughs> because genealogy, for those of you who are Mormon or have yeah. friends who are Mormon, may know that it's a tenant of the religion. And mm-hmm. so they have a, an outstanding genealogy library at in Salt Lake City. Yep. And so invariably, I'd go there on the weekends and I'd be at my little microfiche reader. I'm dating myself with the technology, the microfiche <laughs> reader. When you took out your things, you put them in this big machine and you put Oh, I remember on. that for sure. But on any given Saturday, pun intended on any given Sunday, not on the NFL field, but in the Clayton Library for genealogical research, I would hear one of the librarians going, oh, but he's a very good researcher. So you knew they were saying, what in the expletive is the kid doing here? But uh, so I spent a lot of times in courthouses and, and here I'll geek out for you, David. I was, I would carry around and Brian, if you want to know something really weird, Brian, you practiced law for many, many years. Were you ever in a courthouse where you saw a little kid walking in with a briefcase? I, I have never seen that. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's I guess why <laughs> I got funny looks every time I went in. But because a lot of them, historical records are often contained in the courthouses. The Vital Statistics Bureau is there. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're looking at mortgage and conveyance records. Uh, a skill that I developed at a young age that came helpful when you need a part-time job for beer money in law school to pay the rent, <laughs> I'd go down and do abstracts. And uh, wow. you go get the links on the chain. And and if undergrad in New Orleans, that's a lot of fun because if you get too far back in New Orleans, all the records are in French. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. I've I've always heard that like if you go to law school at Tulane, don't you end up learning some of the French you law? Do. Or, I, yeah, you do. I mean, I went to undergrad at Tulane, so I never went to law school there. I went to law school at University of Florida. Go Gators! Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it, Louisiana is sort of a hybrid jurisdiction. I mean, Louisiana and Puerto Rico is also a civil law jurisdiction. I think most people probably know this. We're based on the common law of our English ancestors, but Louisiana obviously had the French influence. There was the Mm -hmm. Louisiana Purchase from the French, after all. So both Louisiana and Puerto Rico are based on civil law systems as opposed to our English common law. Having Mm -hmm. said that, I call them hybrid because you still cite case law in Louisiana. And I remember, I wasn't even in law school at the time, but I remember saying, oh boy, you got a Tulane or LSU law, you won't get a job out of state because you only learned Napoleonic code. Uh, It's not the case. (laughs) I remember kind of hearing those things myself. A good friend of mine went to to Tulane. He's the general counsel at a company here in Phoenix called Stork Capital. Great guy and a wonderful attorney. And he got a job out of state. So I can... a, a, an example of of that of that old wives' tale not being true. So for yeah, sure. I, I, I'm, I assume it probably was true at one point in time where they said, "Oh, Louisiana, we better not hire them." But it, it's been said enough where I'm sure there is a little bit of credence to it anyway. Um, okay, so your interest in law, you end up at the University of Florida. How did you end up choosing that school? Did you look at other schools? Were you? It's interesting. I spent a lot of time in Florida growing up because mm. I'll call it the officer and a gentleman syndrome. Any kid of a certain vintage who I knew whose father was in naval aviation, nine times out of ten, their mothers were from Pensacola, Florida. Because mm. if you remember that movie from the 80s, Officer and a Gentleman, Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. I do. 
that that happened a lot and my mother despised that movie because it it turned out it portrayed the ladies who date naval officers as, and I know that's gender dated from a bygone era, but let's just say they were not shown in a favorable light, if you recall yes. the film. Um, yes. So there's a strong Florida connection. And then there was a Texas connection too, because it lived in Houston. So uh, this is probably way more than you wanted to know. But as far as the law school choice, I had it narrowed down to three. So the University of Texas, University of Florida, and University of Houston. And I was pretty sure I'd get into the University of Houston. And I was confident, but not sure of Florida. And I was confident, not sure about Texas, mm. but I thought my chances were better at Florida. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and uh, I was not <laughs> foolish. It's like some kids uh, would, would be like, they would claim state residency in more than one state. It's like way to kill your legal career before you even get started. Character <laughs> and fitness finds out about that and you're in a world of hurt. So I had to make a choice. And I chose Florida, go Gators. And uh, go. as they say, the rest is history. There you go. I think this will come out before then, but uh, shameless plug, I still serve on the committee of the University of Florida eDiscovery Conference. And uh, on February 28th and 29th, it's going to be our 11th annual conference at the University of Gainesville, but you can attend remotely and there's a lot of great content. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. I will definitely check that out. As I mentioned, I'm I'm sort of in full-on learn mode in terms of e-discovery and how this all works. This is a so, great place uh, to do it because you can do it from your office. There is a very small minimal fee, but it's free to attend online. And that's one of Bill Hamilton's big things. Professor Bill Hamilton of the University of Florida, he's a former big law litigator, and he really got this program started. I shouldn't be saying this, but I mean, I went to law school in the 90s, and e-discovery was like maybe five minutes of one class. Uh, And I think we're going to get into the history of e-discovery in a moment. But so Bill Hamilton has really built something incredible there. And you get the top practitioners from all over the country. I moderate the judicial panel there. So Mm -hmm. we will be speaking to some of the leading judges in e-discovery. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, AI is certainly going to be a big topic. One of our judges, U.S. District Judge Xavier Rodriguez from the Western District of Texas in San Antonio, has written a treatise on AI. I recommend it highly, and we'll be mm-hmm. discussing that. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, that I will definitely tune into that because I, I think these things, it just it's becoming more and more prevalent. Whether you're in e-discovery or not, it's going to touch your practice. If you're practicing law, you're going to yeah. have to deal with it. And so I will definitely tune into that. So before we take the deeper dive sort of into e-discovery, you graduate from law school, you go work for the National Law Journal. Is that right? So tell me about that that and sort of. I'm always fascinated by these people, the little poindexters who have their lives planned out from day one, Mm -hmm. and they take a single straight linear approach. I will go to law school. I will go work for a firm. I will toil for a while and then become a partner, and that's my life. Mine Mm -hmm. has not gone that way. So I graduate from law school, and I mentioned I had done some reporting before going to law school. So my girlfriend at the time had a job on graduation at the legal department of the United Nations. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, New York. And so I get to New York, and it's it's 2000. So the the dot-com bubble hasn't quite burst But Mm -hmm. they don't, I mean, I clerked for a firm in Birmingham and I was reporting for one summer. So I did not clerk for any of the big New York firms. And so you're Mm -hmm. just such a disadvantage. But there was an, they were seeking an assistant editor and a reporter at the National Law Journal. Like, well, I've already done that. And so 
we got to the interview phase and then they, they gave me the offer and I went like, I'm going to be a reporter at the National Law Journal. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm like mid the big time now. Then we talk salary. I've never been so frank about salary in my life. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm shell shocked at how low the number is. And I'm like, <laughs> how do you get lawyers to work for this kind of money? Mm-hmm. They said, now I'm dating myself again. This is 99 going into 2000. And they're like, oh, You'd be surprised every time we have an opening, the fax machine runs all night long. Well, wow. I take the job because it was the offer that I had and it, it looked like a lot of fun. Uh, but sure enough, every single time a job is open, that fax machine ran all night till it ran out of paper. Wow. And it just goes to show you, I think, how a lot of people are pre-programmed to go to law school and be lawyers knowing nothing about it. I mean, they watched L.A. Law or later than that our good friends in suits or something like that. And so they have no idea on how how things really work. But surprisingly enough, lawyers are not the best writers in the world. One thing is we are trained to write in the passive voice because when you are writing a legal brief or doing a cease and desist letter or a demand letter or whatever you're doing, the passive voice works for legal writing. The passive voice does not work if you're trying to keep people engaged and entertained and wanting to read more. So throughout my life and e-discovery of writing about it, writing articles about it, my annual ebook, my one goal is to make e-discovery fun. And uh, sometimes that's a challenge, my friend. <laughs> well, it, it is interesting, I think, the more you get to know about it. And, and on the topic of writing, I think that's interesting because my – the last person I interviewed, the podcast that, I, that just came out on this show was a guy named Cannon Shanmugam, who is a partner at Paul Weiss in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. He's argued 36 cases before the Supreme Court. Brilliant attorney. And he started out interested in journalism. And he talked about that he wrote he wrote for the high school newspaper and he wrote for the Harvard newspaper and that and he he's really into sports and sports journalism and he said that 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 background as a writer really has helped him as an attorney and i think he that practice i think of uh being on a deadline learning how to write in an effective way that captures people attention people's attention i think really helped him in his legal career so it sounds similar to kind of what you're saying i had a great professor at university of florida professor mccoy He was a family law professor. Now, he may have just been doing this because he didn't want to spend his entire summer or winter break grading papers. But his rule for your final exam was he would ask you a few questions. And these are broad-based questions. It's one of these, impress me with your knowledge of fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Well, he'd have a fact pattern that was three pages long. And your instructions were, answer this question in three reasonably short sentences. Every single word has value. Yeah. And so you're trying to answer this complicated fact pattern, a reasonably complicated legal question, three reasonably short sentences. Fast forward, yeah. where you're getting in there. And in the print world, it was tougher because remember that, well, we still have newspapers. They're not dead yet, but there's the column inch. You have right. so many column inches. And if you wrap to a new line... You've got a challenge in the digital world to a certain extent. You can wax poetically, but mm-hmm. it's tough. So Professor McCoy, wherever you are, thank you because <laughs> that was a skill. During my final exam, I probably rewrote it a million times. I took the entire time on the exam 
for every single word. So yeah, so to use the trite corporate word, there's a very symbiotic relationship between journalism and writing and the law, but very few people do both. Yeah. Well, and and I like your your comment too. And I think a, a lot of the people that listen to this are law students, young attorneys kind of figuring out what they want to do. And um, I like the, I like the perspective of, of not following the traditional path. I keep my, my thing is you can sort of, you, you, you can chart a course, you can sort of point your ship in a direction, but you never know where you're going to end up. And in hindsight, I think a lot of people look back on their career and go, Hey, this is where I was supposed to be. And this is, I knew this from the beginning. I thought this is where I would end up. And I think the reality is you just have no idea. And I think so many uh, attorneys, um, find themselves working in big law, they're 10 or 15 years in and they go, how did I end up here? Right. Like, I didn't want to be here. So well, we um, had a similar experience. Mine, not nearly as in-depth as yours, but uh, I know that you were in higher ed law for many, many years. Now you're a lawyer in a discovery company. And yep. so I've always enjoyed higher ed because and the, the very short amount of time I was outside counsel to a university for about a year and a half. And they, it's, it's something new each and every day. It's yeah. fascinating work. It's just a whole lot of fun. So I have a feeling that because you're a chief legal officer, you probably use those skills on a daily basis. Oh, all the time. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I think we're we're just problem solvers. We We solve legal problems, but we solve many problems. And when you're in higher ed, I would say 90% of the problems you're solving are just practical issues. There's a lot of legal components to higher ed. It's very heavily regulated industry and it's very political. But when you're working on a college campus, I mean, you're working with 18 to 22 year old kids (laughs) and and anything that can happen is going to happen. And so you're constantly trying to figure out how to get navigate all kinds of different little pickles. So I really enjoyed my time and I never set out to become an attorney at a university, but it's where I ended up and it's, it's been the most rewarding part of my career. And the best part of it of all was getting to know the students and working with them and being on campus and so many students that are interested in law. And I think that's kind of shaped a lot of the, 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 this podcast and the inter- in sort of the, yeah. the theme of this podcast is because working with students for 10 years, they are fascinated with the practice of law. And just like you said, many of them are interested in it. Not because, like you, they spent time in courtrooms, but because they watch Suits on Netflix or they they read To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. So understanding the practice of law and and how it works at at a practical level, I think, is very, very interesting to them. Sure. Your experience is probably different because you were the chief administrative officer and the chief legal officer. But... And an outside counsel probably wouldn't anyway, but I almost never interacted with the students. Really? I, I read a lot of their emails, but yeah. I didn't interact with them that much. Well, we had a campus at Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is kind of an interesting story. It's it's a huge business story, successful campus that, that went from almost closing its doors to now having close to 25,000 students on campus and over wow. 100,000 online. And really, really interesting students, fantastic kids, and and just a, a huge number of them are interested in law. So, hey, all right, um, yeah. So, okay. So back to your career, you end up at a place called 451 Research, and so I, I was doing a little bit of background on you. Can you explain what that was? And because I think, if I understand this correctly, that kind of sort of sort of positioned you to end up at Relativity. Is that correct? 
It is to a large extent. It's one thing in your career leads to one thing. The general counsel at the university had said, oh, I hired you because you worked for Covington and Burling. Mm-hmm. And before that, the reason I worked at Covington and Burling is because I had done a little bit of – I think everybody does a document review or two in, in, in law school on your summer job or what have you. But the way I ended up there was I knew a little bit of discovery, and the way I knew anything about legal technology was because of the tragic attacks on September 11th. Mm. And that's really how I ended up in e-discovery. I was a reporter with the National Law Journal, and they sent some of us down to cover the attacks in the Trade Center. Monica Bay was the editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News. It's now called – at the time, it was called Law Technology News. And so we were down there together, and we were the only two ALM reporters who made it down to ground zero – and uh, so after we spent many days writing these articles on September 11th, it, it, we could do a whole show about the e-discovery wow. of September 11th. Mm-hmm. But uh, afterwards, Monica was like, hey, you ought to write an article for me. And those of you who know Bob Ambrosi at the time, Bob was my editor-in-chief at the National Law Journal. And I'm like, hey, if I do this monthly column for Monica. And so the column Technology on Trial was born. And it was a column wow. about lawyers using technology in the courtroom. And so that ended up, because I had that, was writing about e-discovery thoroughly, had done it in-house for a while when I was practicing in-house. That leads to this thing. And then, as I mentioned, Relativity Kikura at the time was a client of 451. Let the record show that I told my boss. It wasn't this thing, okay, I'm going to sneak out the door. <laughs> I had I, gotten this offer, and I told my boss at 451 way far in advance that, hey, this might be too good to pass up because bringing up Monica Bay. And she, Monica Bay passed away in the past few months. She was a living legend in e-discovery. Um, mm-hmm. Long time, the founding editor and the longtime editor of Legal Tech News. But one thing is like, she's like, you got to make up your mind. Be a lawyer or a journalist? And I'm like, I want to be both. She's like, you can't be both. Well, as Monica was right, but I think she was wrong on this at least because in my role at Relativity as Discovery Council and Legal Education Director, I really do get to do both. I write a book, I write articles fairly frequently, but I also get to research legal issues. And yeah. I get to speak at conferences on legal issues. So, yeah, I, I'm not litigating. I'm not in the courtroom. Except when one of my, it was kind of fun, got to be a real lawyer for a minute. When one of my CLEs got bounced by one of the state bars, I got to file a formal appeal with Virginia. And so it was kind of fun. And we won, which made it even funner. Um, nice. Was, actually, this was this was the fun kind of thing when there, there's almost no way you can lose. They bounced it because they said there weren't enough CLE materials. But they had approved this same webinar the year before. <laughs> Interesting. Almost identical. It was a year in review webinar. So huh. it's it's basically the same format with just new cases. Okay. And so they had approved it umpteen number of years in the past. So it's always fun to have those little victories in life. But yeah, so yeah. you mentioned the law students who may be listening to the program. If I could give you any advice keep your options open. And first of all, take an e-discovery class. Yes, it's self-serving. That's the industry Brian and I are in, but it will really help you. I mean, it's the job market is not as good as it's been in some years. The economy's had a rough past 24, 36 months. But man, if you have those technical skills, that will yeah. really help you. And it, but way back in the day, a little bit down the history of e-discovery, um, E-discovery was basically the domain of big, giant corporations and white shoe law firms. And you'd say you're working in e-discovery, like e-discovery, like litigation, discovery, electronic, e, get it? Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. 
But it really changed in 2006 when they had a major amendment to the federal civil procedure. Sophisticated, savvy judges always knew that that e-discovery fell under the emails fell under the definition of what was discoverable in in civil proceedings. But mm-hmm. 2006, those amendments put that to bed. Okay. Then you fast forward. We've got 2012 with De Silva Moore, Judge Peck's order that was the first known judicial blessing of technology-assisted review that really got the wheels going. So we've, in e-discovery, we've kind of had, I call it the tar effect. We've had a 14-year head start on all these people who in November of 2022 were like, whoa, chat GPT. Um, And so there was another amendment in 2015. So these things just go on to make e-discovery. And another thing is technology has made the change. We now walk around with massive computers in our pockets, yeah. and we produce tons of data. So now yeah. it, you, it, it's very rare in a litigation matter that they're not asking for your texts, your biometric data, you name it. So yeah. it, it, it's really changed in a very short period of time. Real quick, I want to recognize our sponsor, Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased, but I was also a client before I started working there too. I've used them on various matters, and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call, and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit TrustArray.com. Now, back to the pod. A lot of people now that I'm doing this, they ask me, what do you do for a living? (laughs) What does a Ray do? And when I try to describe it, I think walking around in legal circles, I think almost all of us understand at some level what e-discovery is. We understand discovery, but I think there's a lot of people that just don't even understand what the process of discovery within litigation and how that works. And so um, the whole foundation of it, of you get sued, you get discovery, quote unquote discovery. You got to turn all this evidence over to the other side and they get a chance. People would just show up with a banker's box full of stuff. And and now, like you said, I mean, almost everything is electronic. Part of the history of Array, one of the founders, Thad Hale, uh, I'm going to speak for him here. I'm going to tell his story. He'll, he, he probably ended up a little bit differently, but he was working in Silicon Valley out of college and working for a big paper company. And they were doing big discovery requests for big law firms. And he had talked to them and said, hey, this e-discovery thing seems to be a thing. Like, And they said, no, no, we're a paper company. We don't do that. Uh, whoops. Um, and so he went out on his own and, uh, and took a small investment and started a discovery firm that, uh, that that grew rapidly. And he caught that wave and he he had the vision to sort of see that in advance in the direction that this was all headed. And yeah, so you mentioned, pay- oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'd, so no, so that I'm just whole sort add, of foundation um, and history of, of, of e-discovery and the people that sort of jumped on board early, I think, have really benefited from it because it's just so prevalent now. No, I was only going to add, give you a little color commentary because you brought up paper. It's funny how many e-discovery companies got their start as litigation copying firms. Mm-hmm. Icon, the major copying company with – I always thought that was a Japanese word or something – Icon, for those of you who are interested, stands for I Know One Name, Icon. No I, way. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. That's, yeah, who, that's they, who, I believe that's who Thad worked for. That was the oh, company. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. 
Well, they eventually followed Thad because they got into e-discovery after doing paper for many, many years. But I mean, it was, they became part of Integrion. So Integrion's okay. doing e-discovery. But yeah, there was Knight Rider, a firm. I want to say they're based out of Houston, but they were called Knight Rider and they had a, their logo was Paul Revere or a Paul Revere looking guy on a horse uh, because they copied the, all the copying at night. Litigation copying a lot of times oh, yeah. done in the evening. So you can yeah. copy the documents back in the old days and get them back to their proper place in the morning so people can do their jobs in their paper world. Wow. Yeah. Another fun well, fact on corporate names, 451 Research, of course, is now part of Standard and Poor's. And like, what was the 451? Was it when your, your address in London or was it like, nope, yeah, think of Ray Fahrenheit 451, paper burns. Ah, interesting. 451 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Okay. Any more of those names that, yeah, throw those out. I always find those interesting. Like I always, well, the, the one that, the, the, that they have these, the, the, these things on logos and somebody pointed out that the FedEx logo is like an arrow, like shooting forward or whatever. I like, it's uh, like until, until you point those things out, like I never even really knew yeah, that. I didn't know that one you. either. Well, back to 451 and the name and talking, get, getting relativity involved. When I was still at 451, was writing a report on relativity and a senior guy at 451 said like, what does Kekura mean? And I'm like, I don't know. I have something I should know. I should go look it up. Kekura, um, Cura is Latin for knowledge. I'm sorry, it's for caring or nurturing or taking care of something. K stood for knowledge. So K Cura was taking care of the knowledge. And I'm talking to this guy at 451, one of the guys who had the idea of the Ray Bradbury inspired name. And he's like, really? I hate those companies with those quasi pseudo intellectual names. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then. Well, there goes that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of us that do like that. I, I like right, the little yeah. hidden Easter eggs in, in some of these things. So I, I enjoy it. So, okay. So speaking of K-Cura then, and, and you're sort of, you join relativity, like what, what, what made you end up wanting to join relativity? I guess there, I want to talk a little bit about the history of relativity as well. And so, but, sure, but what mean, made I, you join them? Well, I guess I'd be. Less than honest if I didn't say that uh, financial compensation had something to do with it because <laughs> I love my job at 451. In fact, there was a competitor of Relativities who's still around, and it was kind of bad because the, some people in the company were and, and it, it's flattering to hear them say this, but they were they wanted to come and talk to me about going to work for them. One of them said. Oregon loves his job. He's not going to leave to come work for us. It's like, well, had I known that, because it was when I told him I was going to work for Relativity, I was supposed to be meeting with their team in mm-hmm. an advisory role. And I couldn't announce it publicly, but I just said to their um, COO, it's like, hey, we need to go ahead and do the briefing. But I have to tell you, tell your people not to tell me anything that they would not tell a competitor because I'm going to work for KQRS slash Relativity. Like, yep. oh man, I knew it. <laughs> and uh, so that was very flattering. But yep. yeah, and I mean, as Relativity's grown by leaps and bounds, but we, we have one of our core values always stay humble. And boy, is that important because the history of e discovery has tons of companies that were big and huge. I, when I yep. first got into it many, many years ago, there were two. Summation and Concordance were the big ones. Yep. And they were, I hear those names all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They were the two big ones Mm -hmm. and no one uses them anymore. 
And yeah. so we really had that issue when we first came out with Relativity One and were going to the cloud because that was pretty controversial at the time. It hasn't been that many years, but it's like, whoa, what do you mean? Put my date on somebody else's server. And then there's the issue of companies who had entire infrastructures and entire business models based on on-premises software. Mm-hmm. And I, Andrew Sage, who was our founder and CEO at the time, was like, if we don't do this, we're going to be out of business in a few years. Yeah, And so we're we're really happy that we still have Relativity Server. I like to think of it as the best of both worlds, the hybrid. But there's still a lot of companies who are using on-premises software for a variety of reasons. But clearly, yeah. the cloud's the future. That's where everything's going. Yeah, and we have clients that, that utilize both for, for various reasons. But yeah, you can see. And it's interesting when, when companies have to make those choices to sort of pivot and it can be difficult at the time. Yeah. And so uh, going back to the history of relativity, if I understand this correctly, I think as I've sort of dug into some of the history of this stuff, Concordance was a big player, if if I recall, but they were a little clunky in terms of their interface and relativity was able to come up with a, a really slick interface that made it easier to understand, not too dissimilar in my mind, this is my analogy, word perfect to Microsoft Word and pointing and clicking and being able to sort of easily yeah. navigate. Is that sort of a good analogy or it, no? It is to a certain extent. The only thing I would add is that relativity is far more robust than summation or concordance were. You could do a lot of things with it. There was a company, Atenex, which um, FTI technology bought years later. First time I saw that, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago, it's like, wow, this is Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And with the clustering models and all that sort of stuff. So the technology has come a long way. And we talked about in higher ed is something new every day. Boy, isn't that the truth in technology? Two years ago, we weren't even – we were talking AI, but not generative AI or hallucinations in legal research and court cases. So uh, no rest for the weary. And that's why that – I'm glad we have that core value because – you, you got to stay humble and keep going. You can't say, all right, we're number one, because that is the sure way to end up as a postscript somewhere. Well, I mean, relativity did that, right? I mean, they came into an industry that was and disrupted. Right. So, yeah, you got to always keep your head on a swivel and be looking around to see which way the direction where, where the industry's headed. You got to stay out in front. You got to make those investments when they may not be popular and 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 relativity has been able to do that and they're a pioneer and 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 a giant in our space and a wonderful technology and they're constantly staying out in front of things. And so kudos to you and the team there Thanks. for doing the fantastic job that you guys have done in this space. Because it is it is difficult to stay on top. It is. And so what that being the case, I guess, what is the next step? Where where are we headed with this technology? Where AI is obviously the buzzword; everybody uses it. How how is that disrupting e-discovery? What other things should we be thinking of? What is relativity thinking of to stay out in front? Well, the most recent thing is baking artificial intelligence into the software. I mean, we we're getting into semantics because it's like, okay, is tar AI? Is it artificial intelligence? Augmented intelligence? What exactly is it? Uh, But we've been working with TAR and Relativity Advanced Learning for years and years and years. And so now the idea is to take it a step further and do generative AI. The latest is Air for Review, and that is little a, little i, big R, Air for Review. And that would, of course, be artificial intelligence. There you have it. And it's using it for review. And 
the stuff it can do now is just mind boggling. I remember I was even impressed with tar, how you could raise and lower your confidence level and it would change the quality of the emails that you get in. But now mm-hmm. adding generative AI through things like air is, is just a, a change in the ball game. And so how disruptive is that? Tar has already been a big disruptor in that the document review has not gone by the wayside, but we sure don't have as many of those 500 attorney document reviews going forward as we used to. Yeah. Well, and it seems it's getting more credibility in the marketplace, right? Right. And I mean, does chat, I mean, do you think, does chat GPT have something to do with that? It seems like it to me that just the launch to the masses to kind of go, oh, okay, this is what, AI is, and this is kind well, of how this know, could I, work. And yeah, I, I was saying that we've had some time since De Silva Moore. It's been almost fourteen years now. Middle fact, it'll be fourteen years next month. But uh, we have an advantage. We do the general counsel report. It's something we do with FTI every year. Ari Kaplan of Ari Kaplan Advisors is our principal investigator. And we interview chief legal officers. What makes it different? There are a lot of tons of surveys interviewing lawyers and interviewing corporate counsel. Mm-hmm. What makes this one interesting is that it is only chief legal officer. You'd qualify for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we surveyed them from all over the world. And this year we asked on six specific legal functions, including e-discovery, operations management, legal research, where you feel comfortable using AI. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, e-discovery led the pack. E-discovery yeah. was the legal function where most of them, 92% of them felt at least somewhat comfortable using AI and e-discovery. Wow. Um, yep. For legal research, contract management, everything else, it was much lower. Yeah, that's that's not surprising on that. So here's an interesting one. So I'm uh, flipping through Twitter and some people that I follow. There's a guy on there that I follow on Twitter. His name's Greg Eisenberg. He's an entrepreneur. He's kind of a, a tech geek and stays out in front of some things. He gave some spicy takes. And this was <laughs> this was one of them. He said... You'll probably trust your AI lawyer more than your real lawyer in a few years, just as you'll trust your self-driving cars over getting into a random Uber with a stranger driving. And in Phoenix, I can tell you, we see Waymo cars all over the place. What do you think? Is that a, is that, is that, I mean, lawyers are wondering, like, are we going to be replaced, right? By AI? What's your take on all that? Of course. Well, the techno lawyers aren't going to be replaced. It's like, who gets to operate the robots? And so that goes back to what I was saying to the law students. You really know the technology. And there was, I'm going to paraphrase poorly here, but I remember someone said AI will not replace lawyers, but it will replace the lawyers who don't adopt technology. And as far as some of the ones, I loved your one about artificial intelligence and whether or not we should be afraid of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Judge William Matthewman from the Southern District of Florida had a great quote on that from Relativity Fest last year when he said, I don't fear artificial intelligence. I look forward to it and I embrace it. This is primarily because artificial intelligence cannot possibly be worse than certain levels of human intelligence I've suffered over the years. So <laughs> That's he, a makes, good... he makes it a great point. Well, and I think it, 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 it's, I don't know. It's like kind of like when the internet came out, it's, I mean, even fax machine, you see technology coming along, right? It disrupts every industry. I mean, it's not like this is the first time that technology has come along and, and scared people. And I think it's, to me, it's important to get out in front, get on board, 
figure out how you can use it as a tool to assist you. It doesn't replace you, but if you don't, if you don't jump on board and figure it out, it will pass you by because I think there, there are definite benefits to utilizing it. It just, you can't rely on it wholeheartedly a hundred percent. We've seen what happened with those lawyers in New York that cited the cases that never existed and the hallucinations and all the sort of things you have to have somebody at the wheel driving, but you, you can use it to su- support what you're doing, I think. Yeah, Mata Viavianca was, is a fairly interesting case. There's a newer one, and shameless plug for my ebook coming out next month, covering all of last year's e-discovery. Dis- not, let me step back from that. Covering selected e-discovery decisions from last year. But there's a follow-up one that was just filed right before the end of the year. Well, the case has been going on for years, but this issue came up. Michael Cohen former President Trump's former lawyer, right. was a case where they had a filing in a criminal matter involving him where he's served his time and now he's trying to get off supervised release. And so there was a hallucination. Well, it turns out these were cases that Michael Cohen gave to his lawyer. Michael hmm. Cohen's like, whoa, I'm not the lawyer in this case. And frankly, he's been disbarred, so he's not a lawyer anymore anyway. It's like, hey, I have no ethical obligation here. I didn't do anything. Counsel said, hey, uh, my client, a lawyer, or albeit former lawyer, gave me these cases. And there's also other counsel. Hmm. So he assumed that the other counsel's team had shepherdized these cases, gone through them, site checked mm-hmm. them, what have you. And so it sort of slipped into the cracks. So that's an interesting tale, more so almost, well, both of them are miscommunication cases. Because you may remember in Mata, there was a guy, one guy in the firm had a federal bar card, and the other guy who actually knew this case was not admitted in federal court there in the Southern District. So the guy Mm -hmm. signing the pleadings was not the guy doing the research. And -hmm. in this case, counsel signing the Rule 11 certification was not the lawyer who was actually doing the legal research. It was the disbarred lawyer doing it and they thought the other one was doing it so man communication on the legal team muy importante as they say yeah i mean it's i mean so it kind of just brings home the point that like whether you use an ai or whether you're using real bodies you got you got to double check your work right you got to always sort of be careful when, when you're signing something when you're presenting something to the court so yeah good little tip there we should get some ethics credit for this one there you go So one of the things I wanted to touch on a little bit too was just legal ops. So one of the interesting things for me getting into this space is sort of the the growth in this whole industry of legal operations. E-discovery falls within that, but you have contract review, you got legal billing software, this whole, I'm I'm heading to legal tech next or legal week next week. Looking forward to seeing you there. Yeah. yeah, It'd be nice to, to meet in person. And so what are your thoughts just on this whole thing? I think it's absolutely terrific. I'm seeing some incredible people that are really getting a chance to shine and show when they learn this, all these different technologies, they understand how it works. They can make in-house legal departments so much more efficient. Like as a chief legal officer, I wish I had embraced legal ops sooner in my career because I think it just, they're adding so much value so quickly. And so what are your thoughts on on that industry and just how quickly it's grown and, and kind of what it's become today? Yeah, I think all you need to do is see the success of clock and to see how legal operations 
is 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 really going just gangbusters. Clock Overnight has become a major conference. And for you, someone who's a chief legal officer, I mean, it's it's vitally important. It's half your job. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, I don't want to try to <laughs> dictate how you divide your day, but it's a big deal if you're a chief legal officer. So yeah. as, as technology has changed the rules of the ballgame, um, it really has changed that because it wasn't too long ago where you didn't have iManage. You weren't managing your files that way. And so, yep. yeah, just just huge and just like e-discovery changing all the time. Yeah, and and so I think in, in to the law students or the people that are interested in going to law school, I guess my pitch would be maybe look at legal ops, look at e-discovery, look at some of these technologies that are coming out that are impacting the legal industry. You may, whether you go to law school or not, I, I think it's – I found – in my career that going to law school and becoming a general counsel it gave me kind of a accelerated path to the boardroom. Yeah. I feel like right now e-discovery, legal tech, legal operations, th- these areas are a quick way to get yourself a seat at the table in in big companies, big law firms and and really make an impact early in your career. So I I just my my sort of pitch to people that are interested in law is take a look at this space. I think it's really interesting and I think there's a, a huge opportunity from a career perspective. I could not agree with you more, sir. Yeah, okay. Well, I covered this space. I didn't I didn't leave much room for you to add any color on that one. <laughs> no, no, no. You I, I you did it very eloquently, counsel. I appreciate that. So what what tips do you have for me though as I head into my first legal week? I hear that it's an absolute zoo it is. up there well what, i'm always a fan of have? going to the educational sessions not only because i give them because i think you can learn a lot and get a lot of good information from them i've always found walking the show floor to be interesting hmm. and, and, and you can really learn the state of the technology just by walking the slow show floor and talking to the vendors i can remember when I was still at the National Law Journal going to Legal Week, it says it's 20-some-odd years ago, you'd go there and you could go to the different booths where you could wipe all your metadata. They still have the software. Now, if you're doing contract negotiations and you're negotiating as a team and then you're sending a version to opposing counsel, I'm sure there's still a great use for this software. But I will never forget this because I've done so much e-discovery over the years with the guy saying yes. And you want to make sure that you wipe your e-discovery data before you produce it to the other side. But of course, <laughs> well, the rules have changed. You cannot do that. It's not yeah. called cleaning up your data. It's called spoliation of evidence. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. No. Yeah, I don't recommend that. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to going. I'm looking forward to doing that. I, I, there's lots of educational co- component to it. And then but like I say, I think just not overmeeting myself if that's a word. Oh, it is. Give I myself mean, time to see things. Yeah. And I I can't tell you enough to do that because when I was at 451, I used to have briefings with just about every major vendor in the e-discovery space. So by the end of legal week, I'm I'm dead. Number one and number two, I didn't have a minute to do anything. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you, you, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that one. And, and I'm picking up a little bit of street cred with my daughter, who is a huge Breaking Bad fan. That uh, Brian Cranston uh, is going to be Cranston, our the Tuesday. I have no idea. Right. She said, "Well, how, what does he have to do?" I said, I, "With legal industry, I have no idea. It'll be interesting." Yeah, he he'll hopefully he will. Stay in his wheelhouse and stick in his lane. I went to a conference many, many years ago where they had William Shatner as the keynote. I'm like, oh, great. We're going to get to hear about Spock and the SS Enterprise, and we're going to get to hear about TJ Hooker and Heather Locklear being on the hood of his cop car and all this. (laughs) 
William Shatner starts talking about information governance. <laughs> and I'm like, no, make it yeah. stop. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's not what you're here for. That's not why we signed you. Yeah. Right, exactly. So uh, I'm sure he'll be great. Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to to that. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. Like I say, I'm just kind of jumping in with both feet into this industry. Great. So for me, this is just a huge learning curve, figuring things out. So one of the last topics I want to talk about is something that you guys host every year, Relativity Fest. Right. So everybody that I know in this space makes their way over to that. That's a huge part of the industry. So explain a little bit about kind of what Relativity Fest is and how that works. Relativity Fest started as Relativity's user conference. And so the users get together, talk about the software. To say it has grown it would be an understatement. I And there was a fundamental change when I came on board in 2015. I was already the moderator of the judicial panel at Fest before I even came to work at Relativity Fest, at Relativity. Mm -hmm. So this past year, I moderated the 10th judicial panel. Can't believe we've been doing it for 10 years. Wow. So we have an entire CLE track, a legal education track, where you can come in and get your CLE credits learn about the legal things. I moderate a case law panel, the judicial panel. We do. A, we have the e-discovery State of the Union, which I call is the most fun one can have in a CLE session. It's, it's just a whole educational track. And then there's, of course, all the product tracks to learn the newest and the latest in relativity. And mm -hmm. it's the big deal where you get to come and you see all your friends that you only get to see at conferences. Speaking mm -hmm. of Ambrosi, who at the time was my editor-in-chief of the National Law Journal, he lives right up the coast here. And we basically see each other at conferences. So yeah. it's a great place to see your friends and to really learn the latest and to get to geek out, as they say, with the people who like the same thing you do. <laughs> well, everybody I know that loves it, it is it is an opportunity to sort of connect with your peers, talk about e-discovery. I think, and we didn't really touch on it, but I, to me, e-discovery really is interesting. It's fascinating. It's it's a It's a thread that weaves through everything that we do. We are all yep. on our phones, on our computers. It's, it's data is central to everything that we are all doing. And so the, the stories, some of the stories that have come out as I've kind of learned about e-discovery are interesting because while you're talking about technology, there, there's some interesting human interest stories uh, that about what people are trying to do to avoid someone finding out what they've said in that text message or whatever. So um, yeah, my brother yeah, always says, be wise, don't digitize. That's what he always says. <laughs> nice. uh, yeah. oh, I love it. And it's, but, but it's e-discovery, but it's, there, there's, there's human interest psychology. There's a lot that goes into this that create the case law that's kind of resulted in sort of the, the rules of the road that we have today. So any interesting stories, I guess, or things that you want to share from from that perspective? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things you can get out of Fest is, I mean, I hope you obviously come to the educational sessions and get your CLE credit. But uh, one of the things is somebody will be talking about a problem and you'll be like, yes, I had that happen to me too. And so yeah. that is really one of the ways where you can learn about that kind of stuff and realize, hey, it's not just me. Other people run into this issue as well. Yeah. One of the, as I've sort of been learning, I, I'm going to make a plug for another podcast that I found interesting. There was a, there's a, there's a podcast called eDiscovery Chicks. Are you familiar with this one? I've heard of it. I've got to tune in. I have not listened to it yet. 
they do a great job of making e-discovery interesting. I, I highly recommend listening to it. They go through a little bit of the history of e-discovery, some of the early cases where people just wiped their phones or deleted, thought it was sure. gone. They kind of cover like bad behavior by people who are trying to get away with things, but they do it in a really interesting and fun way. They're not afraid to have a cocktail or two while they're discussing <laughs> of some not. of these topics and stuff. And so my pitch, my pitch would be maybe reach out to that. They might be interesting to have on a panel at Relativity Fest. And yeah, I think, I think what they are, frankly, they're, they, they work for a big firm. I want to say in Seattle, big company in Seattle, and they were basically tasked as part of their in-house legal team, figure out the C discovery stuff. And so they just jumped in and figured it out. What? And then they Thanks started the a podcast. Tip. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I I would recommend listening to them. They're 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 really interesting people. They tell interesting sort of compelling e-discovery stories. They do make it fun. So Great. there you go. I'm I'm pitching one of my competitors. Cool, David. Thank you so much. Did, what did we miss? Do we? Are, hey, there, Brian. We, I think we've covered the universe. But uh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It, it has been fun. I appreciate you joining. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I want to thank uh, Array, our sponsor, for making this possible. And for future episodes, please tune into the Attorney Lounge on op- Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. David, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you at Legal Week next week. Thanks, Brian. We'll see you soon. All right. 